0: In case you're wondering why I'm pulling double duty today, uh, many of you know that Kelly's father-in-law, Robin's father, passed away, uh, I guess it'd be a little, about a week ago, be just about a week ago now, and uh, their, his funeral was on Friday, and so uh, their family is out of town, and somebody still needs to be here to preach, and I don't know about you, but I think it's pretty awesome that we have a church family, where uh, when stuff happens, you can go be with your family, and Things here keep clipping along. So, anyway, uh, that's why I'm up here right now. And uh, not only that, I actually enjoy preaching. So it's good to be here. I enjoy the opportunity. A couple of things that I just want to kind of housekeeping matters before we dive into it. There's going to be no Bible classes through the summer. Uh, and so... Part of what's going to happen is our acapella service. This doesn't really impact you guys, uh, but our acapella service is going to move back to 10.30, but we kind of encourage you to hang around afterwards. There's going to be only kind of a 30 to 40-minute gap between the two services. I we just want to encourage a time of fellowship, and so on occasion we're going to, uh, you know, have dainties, you know. <laughs> We'll have stuff out that you know, we can eat and do the fellowshipping thing, because we're pretty good at that. Um, So just kind of keep your eyes open for that. There may be some teaching stuff, like maybe a video series that will be played in the fireside room that hasn't been all uh, shored up yet. But just to let you know, that kind of stuff is underway. But that shift is taking place, so no Bible classes through the summer. Um, Yesterday, uh, serve day, there were a few people uh, who connected here at the building. Anybody get a count on how many of our church family was there? 14-ish, 18, 16, somewhere in there, (laughs) all right, somewhere in in the neighborhood of 15 people uh, from our church got together and served 21 different houses in our neighborhood, we put out a set of flyers saying, hey, if you have yard work in a particular, if you can't do it yourself, or if you can't afford it, or, you know, kind of those kind of circumstances, we want to help you out, Uh, we certainly had a few of those people that we got to help, Um, and so it's just cool that we have a chance to get into our neighborhood and uh, serve those people. Uh, the last thing I want to mention is that during our Bible class time today is Showcase Sunday. And so if you want to see what our kids have been up to and what Jody's been, you know, inviting them to participate in, uh, I invite you to stick around. And so during our Bible class time, we're going to have our Showcase Sunday, which usually we've done during a joint service. And this year it's between our two services. So I um, invite you to stick around and take that up. Am I missing anything? Let's carry on then. Freedom. It's a noun. The power or right to act, speak, or think as one wants without hindrance or restraint. The absence of subjection to foreign domination or despotic government. The state of not being imprisoned or enslaved. The state of being physically unrestricted And able to move easily. The state of not being subject to or affected by a particular undesirable thing. The power of self-determination attributed to the will. The quality of being independent of fate or necessity. Unrestricted use of something. Familiarity or openness in speech or behavior. Freedom. Freedom has become, in many ways, the defining value, I think, of North American culture. When we tell the story of the founding of our nation, and particularly that of our neighbors to the south, I spent a few years down there, freedom is the key. Through great adversity, with great sacrifice, we've thrown off the shackles of the European oppressor, and we've garnered freedom for our citizens. In a few days, we're going to celebrate Canada Day. We're going to retell and reinstill the values of tolerance and multiculturalism that have come to be the hallmark of Canada. And a few days after that, some of you will likely celebrate Independence Day, Freedom Day, with residents of the United States. Freedom is the word that men and women of two world wars fought and died for. For freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of choice. It's the word for which many go to war today to liberate the oppressed. It's the word which we try to imbue with significance for our younger generations who don't actually know, have not experienced, thankfully, the horrors of war and the violent dictators and who perhaps do not cherish what they have as much as they ought. Freedom. One of the ways I think this is a value that's come to maybe the key value come to dominate North America is because I pay attention to commercials marketers have a huge vested interest in figuring out what matters to you in case you're wondering so you should develop the healthy habit of every time they tell you something on TV you should laugh at them and say (coughs) says who okay it's just a healthy skepticism of all marketing that takes place Um, freedom of choice is a value they've latched on to you've Probably not surprised by this, because it touches one of our deepest longings, and because it's good for business. Have it your way. Would you like that in red, blue, or yellow? How about mauve, chartreuse, or salmon? <laughs> uh, would you like that ready next week, by the end of the week, or tomorrow, or this afternoon? Check. Half-calf, no whip, unsweet, no foam, extra hot soy latte. We're in a culture of freedom of choice. And the customer is always right, uh, except if they're in front of you in the customer service line, in which case they're not right and they just need to move along so you can be right. <laughs> the trouble is, we forget that we're not always a customer and that freedom isn't about getting our way. Rick Ashley, uh, we played a series of his last summer called What Jesus Hates. It's a fantastic uh, look at some of the things Jesus hates, and it will surprise you. In the middle of uh, one of his... Um, lectures or sermons or talks. He tells uh, a story of a conversation between a very successful basketball coach, whose name I couldn't track down and I have no idea what his name was, but he was very good, and one of his star players. And one of the coach's rules was, my players do not have facial hair. If you play on my team, you have no facial hair. And so, after one particularly successful season, the uh, star player goes away for the summer and grows a beard and comes back at the beginning of the next season and he says, you know, coach, I, I realize that you have uh, this really strict value about facial hair and that you don't let your guys... But I, I I, disagree. I don't think that uh, that's that's a fair kind of decision for you to make for me. I like my beard and I'm going to keep it. And the coach says, really? Well, I respect that. And the player's kind of a little taken aback. says, really? He says, absolutely. I respect your right to choose. I respect the fact that you have deep values. I want you to live out of those convictions. And all I can say is that we're really going to miss you this season. You see, because we're not always customers. The customer may always be right, but we're not always customers. And we forget that even when we are the customer, we're not always the customer. One of my profs that I respect deeply um, is a very devoted man of God. uh, Likes to eat out. And so he went to one of his particularly favorite restaurants, and uh, you know he frequented there often enough that they probably knew him by name, and if they didn't, they should. And so he showed up one day, and he paid, and he got the incorrect amount of change, and kind of missed that, uh, you know, in the quick exchange of getting his food. And so he went out to the car, realized it was the wrong change. He was missing a dollar. He was out a dollar. And he's kind of hummed and over Do I let this go or not, let this go, and he decided not to let it go. And so he goes back into the restaurant. He's just been there seconds ago, and they're swamped. They're busy. And he kind of, you know, weasels his way up to the front of the line to try and get the person's attention that had helped him. and said, look, like you're, you shortchanged me a dollar. And the guy at the till says, I, I can't really help you with that. I'll have to get the manager, but I need to deal with these customers first. And so my prof kind of stands back, and he's a little taken aback by that, and he thinks, like, it's one dollar. Just give me the dollar, and I'll, I'll go, and I'll be done. I'm a customer. I'm a paying customer. I've been here just moments ago. And so he doesn't let it go, and he starts to tear into the guy in a pretty uh, unkind kind of way. Finally, the manager comes out, and finally he gets his dollar, and finally he goes back out to the car, where his friend, who happened to be a close spiritual friend, was waiting for him. And they just sit there in silence for a second. And the guy turns to him and turns to the prof and says, What was that? Who was that? And the prof pauses and says what are we going to do about it? And his friend says, i tell you what we're going to do about it. We're going to go back in there. And the prof's like, are you kidding me? Like, I mean, he's just still kind of upset about the whole dollar issue. And they go back into the restaurant. And once they get into the restaurant, see some dirty tables that haven't been cleaned off yet. And they start cleaning off tables. And somewhere in the middle of this, the prof had a change of heart. And he realized, and so when the manager who was probably waiting for another irate tirade from this unpleasant customer over one dollar. Ask him what's going on, he says, Well, it seems like you guys are a little bit swamped. And so we're just gonna clean some tables. You see, even when we're the customer, we're not always the customer. That kind of freedom, the freedom to go and serve in a commercial institution, when you've been mistreated as a customer sounds really interesting to me because it's a notion of freedom that I have yet to hear from McDonald's or Burger King or Walmart or the airlines or any other business on the face of the planet. And it sounds a lot like the kind of freedom that I think Paul is talking about in Romans today. I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 6. It's a fairly lengthy passage and I apologize on one hand for it being a lengthy passage, but I don't apologize on the other hand because we need to read the whole thing to get what Paul's after. So, again, Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means! Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves, just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness. So now offer them in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at the time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me pause for just a second. I hope you've kind of caught the contrast. Paul's talking about the old master and the new master. Sin and righteousness. And disobedience and obedience. Did we catch that? I know he's a little thick sometimes. Okay, let's pick up from chapter 7. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives? For example, by law, for example, that's a really key term here. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, You also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not the old way of the written code." And so Paul makes a contrast in the last section. You guys get that when somebody dies, the marriage is dissolved until death do us part? And so we too have died. The law doesn't apply. Paul writes to a church that he hasn't planted. Romans is not his church. And it is struggling with ethnic divisions. It might be a little hard to see that at this point right here in the middle of the letter, but I'm going to ask you to trust me on this one. Jews and Gentiles are squabbling. They're fighting and not getting along, and they're abusing their freedom in Christ at the expense of one another. It's ugly. It's racism. But before he can deal with that, Paul lays some deep theological groundwork, and that's what we've just slugged through. So there's a few issues here that kind of come up. For example, if God's grace is limitless... That means there are absolutely no bounds on my freedom to think and speak and act, right? Limitless grace on God's part can't outsin God's grace. So I can live however I want, and I'm covered. This sounds like the best insurance policy ever. That's how freedom is defined, after all. The power or right to act, speak, or think as one wants without hindrance or restraint, right? By no means, Paul says. You've already heard that. It's the wrong paradigm. It's the wrong way of thinking. Slavery, uh, sorry, um, it's not free from all masters. It's not freedom from slavery. It's which master are you going to be enslaved to? And that changes everything. Paul's paradigm is very different than our notion of freedom. But slavery, you say, is bad. Slavery cannot possibly be good for anybody. But slavery, I say in the first century, is a lot different than the slavery you and I are accustomed to hearing about. Slavery of the Roman Empire is different than the slavery of the cotton patches. Okay? So here's a couple ways that it's different. Slaves in the first century earned wages. And at some point, they could purchase their freedom legally. I'm not suggesting they earned really good wages. I'm just saying they could earn some wages. Slaves in the first century could have families. They could marry. Slaves in the first century sometimes occupied very respectable positions such as doctor or tutor or manager of the affairs of the state. It kind of depended on what country had just been conquered. And you may have been a magistrate in your previous country, and now that the Romans have taken you over, they don't want to put those skills to waste. And so you may become a magistrate, albeit in a slave capacity to the Roman Empire. Caesar's household, as a matter of fact, alone employed hundreds, employed hundreds of slaves. Slavery in the first century is very different. And sometimes people in the first century actually chose slavery. They actually chose slavery because it offered a better life than they could ever hope for as a free person. It all depends on your master. And so Paul draws on imagery that they're familiar with, that they lived out. And he says, you didn't go from having a nasty master called sin to having no master. You went from having a nasty master called sin to having a loving, merciful, gracious master called Jesus. And being enslaved to this master is not free of expectations and requirements. Yes, you are free, but you're not free of expectations and requirements. When you served sin, you earned death. But now that you've been freed from sin and you serve Jesus, you get the gift of eternal life hear me clearly here. I'm not saying we serve Jesus and earn eternal life. You yourselves read it from the text. It's the gift. It's the gift of eternal life because we serve Jesus. And so Paul contrasts a couple directions. You used to give yourselves to impurity and ever-increasing wickedness, so now you should give yourselves to righteousness, leading to holiness. Sorry, I should be consistent with my hand actions. Over here is sin, isn't it? Sorry, guys. (laughs) righteousness. Freedom, Paul says, is a matter of choosing your master. In the words of a more contemporary poet, Bob Dylan, you've got to serve somebody. I'm not going to read the whole song because it takes up the next page and a half of my uh, <laughs> sermon, but I'm going to read a couple lines. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you've got to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. You're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. I'd love to know the context of why he wrote the song. Might be a rock and roll addict prancing on the stage. You might have money and drugs at your commands, woman in a cage. You may be a businessman or some high degree thief. You may call you doctor, they may call you chief. But you're going to have to serve somebody, yes, indeed. You're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You may be a preacher with your spiritual pride. You may be a city councilman with bribes on the side. You may be working in a barber shop. You may know how to cut hair. You may be somebody's mistress. Maybe somebody's heir. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody, I think he's got it right. And if we really think about life, freedom the way that we've idealized it in North America doesn't exist. Well then, if freedom means serving God, then there must be a rule book to follow. If I can't just do whatever I want, then surely there's something on the other end to tell me exactly how I ought to live. And freedom means playing within the guidelines of that rule book, right? But again, Paul seems to have a different idea. After all, he had lived on that side of the equation for a lot of years. He was a rule follower, par excellence, and it didn't do much to earn God's favor. Instead, Paul offers an analogy, marriage law, that we've just looked at. When you're married, you're bound by that covenant until death do us part. But after one partner or the other dies, the marriage is dissolved. He or she is free from the law through that death. And so... While Paul acknowledges that there is a law that we can follow and one that we can try and turn into a legalistic set of rules that we dot all our I's and cross all our T's and somehow earn our way into eternal life, he says, nope, nope, the death dealt with that too. In a similar way, the Mosaic law, which once bound us hand and foot to live in a very particular way that prescribed every action for every situation, but not really, is no longer in force. For one has died, and we have died with him, and the law no longer applies." we are free to remarry. We're free to choose a new master. So on the one hand, grace is not moral license, or sorry, is not license to moral irresponsibility with no boundaries. And on the other hand, grace is not a life of legalistic devotion to oppressive rules. So what is the deal? Are you guys tracking with me? Go ahead and nod some heads, I can see you. All right, we're tracking. Paul puts it this way. Take a look in chapter 7 again, verse 4. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God and verse 6 by na- but now by dying to what once bound us we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and in the old way of the written code again Paul says your paradigm is not either or it's neither it's not unbounded immorality nor is it the most chaste rule following legalistic okay it's neither one of those it's something totally different wrong paradigm Serving in the spirit versus the written code, sometimes we look at it and we say, so what Paul's really talking about is we need, to, we need to get the intent. We need to get the spirit of it, right? Versus being literal with the text. And that's not it at all. He's not talking about an outer demand versus our inner disposition. Paul here is actually talking about something totally different, as he often does, than what we get. He's talking about the changing of an era, a changing of the guard. The old way was the way of sin, The old way was the way of the law. And that era has ended with the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We're now in the era of the spirit. And it's different. And he spends chapters, the whole book, expounding on what that means. We have died to the power of sin, Paul says. We have died to the ways of the flesh. Everything that characterizes the self-indulgent, self-centered, me-focused, I-have-a-right-to way of life. That way of life holds no attraction to us. It holds no sway over us because it is dead to us. And we are dead to it. One author puts it this way. It's a little dense, so bear with me. Paul is undercutting some false views of Christian freedom. Freedom is not just freedom from sin, but also freedom for specific lifestyles and tasks God has called a person to. In particular, it is freedom to serve God. Christian freedom does not entail freedom from any and all sorts of obligations or obedience. Freedom to be merely self-indulgent and then presume on the mercies of God. That's not what freedom is about. Freedom in Christ does not mean being free from all masters and lords. It does not mean radical independence. It means being free to serve the one true Lord and to be under the law of Christ. That's what freedom means. That is what Paul is after. And he fights tooth and nail against both sides that are saying, no, it's this way, no, it's this way, fork, spoon, Coke, Pepsi, sin, righteousness. He's not saying it's either one. He said there's a totally different way to understand freedom. And so if in fact we have died with Jesus and been buried in baptism and raised to new life, we are free to serve in the new way Of the Spirit. What does that mean? Let me throw a few stories your way, courtesy of a gentleman named Shane Claiborne, who has taken following Jesus to a degree that I don't know if I'll ever get to in my life, but has produced some really challenging, uh, or he's communicated some really challenging stories out of this deeply devoted life to Jesus. In 2006, a gunman, killed five Amish children and then he decided to take his own life. Within the first week, the Amish families who had suffered such terror responded in four very captivating ways. Some elders visited Mary Roberts, or Marie Roberts, the wife of the murderer, to offer her forgiveness. That's not what you do when you're free, When somebody attacks you, you're free to fight back, aren't you? They went to visit the wife of the now-dead murderer to offer forgiveness. The families of the slain girls invited the widow to their children's funerals. They requested that all relief money intended for the Amish families be shared with Miss Roberts and her children. In an astonishing act of reconciliation, dozens of Amish families attended the funeral of the killer. You want to talk about freedom in Christ? What a glorious story of the kingdom. Can you imagine if these Amish families had been in charge of homeland security after 9 11? (laughs) What if we'd gone to bin Laden's house and offered him forgiveness? What if we'd invited families of the hijackers to the funerals of the victims of 9-11? What if a portion of the September 11th Fund had been dedicated to relieving poverty in a Muslim country? What if we dignified the burial of their dead by our own respectful grief? What if instead of seeking vengeance, we'd stood together in human pain, looking honestly at the shared sin and sadness that we'd suffered? and recognize that that was the old way that Jesus died, and we are dead to that way, and we can't possibly respond in that way anymore because we serve in the newness of the Spirit. I think it's a powerful, powerful example, a glimmer of hope. But you know what? Most of us don't live in that place, and I pray that we don't have to live in that place. And so let me share with you a couple other stories that maybe are a little more graspable. The other day, we met a robotics engineer, Shane Claiborne writes, who used to make robots just to impress people. But then he started thinking about his purpose in this world and God's dream for the world. He's still a robotics engineer, but of a different kind. He designs robots to dismantle landmines so kids in countries like Afghanistan can play without worrying about getting blown up. Before the robots came... Many of the landmines were being dismantled by little kids who were paid next to nothing and often had their hands blown off. He's a missional robotics engineer disarming the world for Jesus. Freedom and spirit to retool your career. Another friend of ours is a massage therapist. She could be making a hundred dollars an hour giving massages to rich folks, but she says there are plenty of massage therapists who do that. She lives near the poor and the homeless. She knows plenty of people whose feet are their transportation, and she is friends with women involved in sex trafficking who walk the red light district all night long. These people have tired, sore feet and no massage therapist to offer them services until now. Every week she opens her home to them, washes their feet with the most delicate and deliberate touch, and gives them the best foot massages money can't buy. There's a group of jewelers in the United Kingdom, many of whom had been business folks in the world's market economy. The jewelry industry, as I'm sure you're well aware, is notoriously wicked, often called the blood diamond market, responsible for significant human suffering around the world as workers shed blood, tears in their very lives, mining gems and precious metals that they can't even afford to buy. Many of these who found their faith colliding with the industry decided that rather than abandon the industry, they would try and transform it. They traveled across Bolivia and Colombia and Africa to build relationships and pioneer a jewelry business called cred, where every diamond, from the moment it was mined to the moment it goes on your finger, was handled by workers treated with dignity and with respect having encountered the sacredness of Jesus and of their global neighbor, they're a different breed of jewelers now. And so we sit together this morning and we are engineers and accountants and we're laborers and we're students and we're pilots and we're executives and we're software programmers. We're all over the map. And you are free. You are free in Christ Jesus To dream dreams, the world's perverted version of freedom will never allow you to dream. We are husbands and fathers. We are mothers and wives. We are kids. We are brothers and sisters. We are people who live in a city where the freedom of Jesus lets us dream dreams that the world's perverted version of freedom will never let you dream. It can't fathom the freedom that we have in Jesus' We, having died with Christ, are no longer bound by the laws of this world. We're no longer burdened by the laws of Moses. We, having died with Christ, are free. We are free to sacrifice our rights. We are free to give up our pride. We are free to tame our egos. We are free to lay down our lives. We are free. We who have died with Christ, having been raised again, are free to live and to dream in the new way of the Spirit. And so the only question is, what freedom is the Spirit giving you this week? Let's sit on that for a minute and then we'll sing.